Welcome to the Denver United Church Sermon of the Week. Here's a message from Pastor Rob Brendel. God for that. That is some amazing kingdom work that he has entrusted to us. So grateful to be a part of a church that in a year that says, uh, hunker down and take care of myself and just get through it, that has instead said, Jesus, how can we be a blessing? And has been a blessing and represented Jesus in practical ways here in Denver and around the world. Great job. Love you all so much and so grateful for that. You ready to jump into the Word this morning? All right, Father, in the name of Jesus, thanks for your truth and life that is in your word. Would you lead us closer to your heart and form Jesus in us as we worship you by studying your word, we give it our attention, and it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. You know, my heroes are mostly ordinary people who do extraordinary things. There's something to be sure about people who are born great, achieving greatness, And those are necessary, but it's the ordinary average man and woman who simply says yes and does something extraordinary that really inspire me. One hero of mine is a little-known name to most Americans. William Wilberforce lived in England in the late 1700s and early 1800s. He was hardly a person of note, recognized by historians as a small, frail, and sickly child with poor eyesight. Throughout school, he underperformed. He was barely an average student at university and wouldn't have been noteworthy at all except for his aristocratic heritage. It was toward the end of his college career that A friend and mentor led him to Jesus, and in response, as so many of us do at that season of life, started looking for purpose in his life. He followed a friend into government service, and it was there that he said yes. Soon after graduating college, as a young adult, Wilberforce came into contact with a man who had served as the ship's surgeon for a slave trading vessel, and then later as physician-in-residence at a slave plantation in the New World. He was so horrified by what he saw that that man rejected entirely the slave trade, found faith in Jesus, and became part of the budding abolitionist movement back in England. He met Wilberforce and his tales of the horrors of the Middle Passage and the slave trade made what would be a lasting impression. England had been at the forefront of the slave trade, getting into that awful business in the 1500s, and by Wilberforce's time in 1783, was leading the world in the slave trade. That triangular route from England, loaded down with goods to be sold in the New World, ships would make passage to the African coast where they would take on a full cargo hold of slaves and then make the middle passage to the Americas where they would sell both their cargo and their slaves and then take on goods to return back to England with products from the mainland that British people wanted to buy 
And so it continued until in Wilberforce's lifetime, 11 million Africans had been transported to a life of slavery or died along the way. And so in hearing these horrors firsthand from his new friend, young and otherwise unremarkable William Wilberforce carried a heavy conscience and a newfound Christian faith into a job as a junior member of parliament in the House of Commons, at which time he was approached because of that position and asked to bring this issue for the first time before the British Parliament. It was an invitation that would go on to describe his life. Our title this morning, Say Yes. We're beginning a series that we give focus to at this time every year called Legacy, where we round the final turn into the end of a year, looking at what it means to live beyond ourselves, to live for something more than us, and to live a life that leaves a legacy that outlasts us. We also culminate this series and turn the corner into the Advent season, the holiday times that for most Americans are characterized by indulgence and credit card debt and consumerism putting into practice what the Lord Jesus said, that it's more blessed to give than to receive. We receive together our legacy offering. And that's what endows the work, some of which, just a tip of the iceberg of which, you saw depicted in that incredible video. And so begins legacy this year at a time all the more for the pandemic the economic recession, and all the other hardships we as a human race have endured in 2020, that our tendency, our inclination is to focus down and in. And I believe the Word of God invites us instead to lift up our eyes, to focus up and out. So for our legacy series this year, we're going to look at the book of Acts. It's our way here at Denver United to teach through books of the Bible over the course of time and through much of the last year, We were studying through the book of Acts. We were in the middle of a series in the latter part of the book of Acts, focusing on the Apostle Paul and his second missionary journey, a series ironically entitled Disruptors, when the world was turned upside down and our series was disrupted. So together, we responded to the uncharted waters of COVID-19 and all that has ensued. Now, it seemed good to finish this year out going back and picking up literally right where we left off. And so, if you would, turn in your Bibles with me or look on the screen to Acts chapter 18. Starting in verse 1, the Word of God records, Then Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. Remember, perhaps back in March, back before time began, it seems, when Pastor George taught us about how Paul was in Athens and he identified how religiously pluralistic and diverse the people were. And rather than shaming or condemning them for that, he found that statue on Mars Hill dedicated to an unknown God. And he explained the hope of Jesus to the people through the keyhole of that awareness. Well, We're continuing where we left off. Paul leaves Athens and moves on to another marquee city in Europe, Corinth. 
And there he became acquainted with a Jew named Aquila, born in Pontus, who had recently arrived from Italy with his wife Priscilla. They left Italy when Claudius Caesar deported all Jews from Rome. Paul lived and worked with them, for they were tent makers, just as he was. And in verse 11, this portion of the story is wrapped up. So Paul stayed there for the next year and a half teaching the Word of God. Priscilla and Aquila are our unsung heroes, little-known characters in the New Testament who give a simple, singular, and critically important lesson that we can't pass over without taking note of. What was happening in their time? They were Italians, the Word teaches, and they were deported because of the vicious Roman rule that at that point in time sent Jews away. Jews have been deported throughout much of history from one place to another. They land in Corinth and they have to start all over again. You can imagine they didn't just start learning how to make pence there. They probably had a business back in Italy somewhere and had to leave home, family, clientele, workplace, and move to safety. So here they are getting reestablished. And when, when the scripture teaches that they were tent makers, this isn't in the euphemistic evangelical Christian sense. I think they actually did jobs where they sewed material together and made tents and sold them, right? We take our euphemistic meaning from Priscilla and Aquila and indeed from the Apostle Paul. He finds people who do his job. Remember, that was what he did as well. And perhaps looking for work so that he could fund his ministry, he asks them, can I join forces with you? Well, the work synergy leads to something more. And you can imagine the conversation at home when um, Aquila invites Paul over for dinner. And he's like, yeah, this is my wife, Priscilla. And she's like, good to meet you, Paul. And he's like, yeah, I hear you and my husband. I've really been hitting it off. He's like, yeah, man, I'm so grateful for Aquila giving me this opportunity. I needed a place to work. Times are hard. And, um, and kind of funding our own thing here. And so they get to talking, find out that Priscilla and Aquila share love, with Jesus, love for Jesus with him. And um, it comes to that moment where she's like, um, where are you staying, Paul? And he's like, well, funny you should mention that. Aquila mentioned that I could crash here, that you have a guest room. And she's like, oh, he did. Awesome. And I, I, I picture the scene from Elf, remember, where he comes home and, and she's like, how long are you planning to stay, buddy? And he's like, I was thinking forever. <laughs> and she's like, oh, okay. So Paul stays there, scripture tells us later, for three years in their house. It teaches in verse 18 that Paul stayed in Corinth for some time. That some time goes on to be quantified a little later in the story. And then he sets sail for Syria, and he takes Priscilla and Aquila with him. And I think this is one of those moments where what's actually going down is monumental, but it's understated in one phrase in the Scripture. So you've got to just draw out not so much the meaning, but the significance. You can't miss the significance of this. First, they had had this conversation where Priscilla's like, um, Aquila, can I talk to you in the kitchen now? You ever have that conversation? And he's like, 
And she's like, he can't stay here for indefinitely. And then Aquila's like, but honey, he's a man of God. He's building the kingdom. And so they go back and forth. And finally, they land on Paul staying with them for three years. Well, imagine, fast forward three years, this conversation. Priscilla's like, I know that we've just gotten established, honey. And I know that it was hard when we had to leave home and family and the business you worked so hard to build to provide for us. Really grateful for that. And now you've done it all over again. But there's just something about it when he speaks. I feel like God's like speaking to me. And Priscilla's like, Aquila's like, God's speaking to you, is he? Did he come in like an angelic visitation form? How's this going down? She's like, no, it's just like a sense in my heart. And I had a dream. You had a dream? You had a dream. And God showed me that we were supposed to go with him. And Aquila is like, all right. Well, since God said so. And they left everything a second time. Think of how sacrificial that is. And when Paul invited them, they said, all right. And they went along with him and left everything behind. And the thing that I think we can take from their life, we have to take from their life as we're studying through the scriptures, we, even though there's nothing super flashy about Priscilla and Aquila, we can't just skim over this because here's what I think they teach us. A legacy always begins with a yes. A legacy always begins with a yes. I don't think they knew what they were saying. I don't think they crafted some important life of which this decision was a monumental part. I think they simply saw what God was doing in their time. And when they were invited in, they said, even though it's hard to imagine, and even though it feels sacrificial beyond measure, yes. A legacy always begins with a yes. In Matthew chapter 4, the Bible teaches one day Jesus was walking along the shore of the Sea of Galilee and he saw two brothers, Simon and Andrew, throwing their nets in the water for they fished for a living. They were literally in the middle of fishing, doing their job. Jesus called out, come and follow me and I'll show you how to fish for people, familiar verse. And they left their nets at once and followed him. A little farther up the shore, he saw two other brothers, James and John, sitting in a boat with their dad, repairing their nets. Again, in the act of doing their profession. And Jesus called them to come too. There is, at the beginning of every legacy, perhaps not a clear vision of the significance of which little old us will be a part, but there is an opportunity if we are listening, if our eyes are off of ourselves, an opportunity simply to discern what God is doing in our time and an invitation to say yes. Can you imagine the people that weren't Peter and James and John? The people who were doing other jobs that we don't have scriptures about because Matthew didn't write it down. The people to whom Jesus said, hey, leave your plumbing wrench and come and follow me. And, and they're like, yeah, whatever, man. I got too much work to do. Can you imagine how comprehensively you would have missed out on what God was doing in your time? How on the wrong side of history you would have woken up and found yourself to be? What greater tragedy is there 
But they said yes, little knowing how these ordinary fishermen would go on with Jesus to change the world. Irrespective of who we are, how qualified we seem, or how ready we feel, God changes the world, does extraordinary things through ordinary people. And we leave a legacy. And it begins simply with a yes. History teaches that young William Wilberforce pondered the invitation for some time. He felt the great importance of the subject. One historian observes and thought himself unequal to the task allotted to him. Nonetheless, he began to read widely on the subject, ultimately agreeing to bring forward the abolition of the slave trade in Parliament. Provided, he wrote in his journal, that no person more proper could be found. He didn't consider himself to be anything. And indeed, in the eyes of his countrymen, he wasn't. He was a young and insignificant member of the House of Commons who was only there because of dad's title or money. He was of no particular importance. And his bringing such a monumental and against all odds build a parliament was laughable in his time. He didn't imagine himself to be anyone great. He said yes because nobody else could be found more suitable or perhaps more foolhardy to do it. On the 12th of May in 1789, six years of study and research and preparation into what would go on to be his life's defining work. William Wilberforce made his first major speech on the subject of abolition in the House of Commons, in which he reasoned that the trade was morally reprehensible and an issue of national and natural justice. He described in detail what he had gone on to witness for himself the appalling conditions in which slaves traveled from Africa to the Americas in the Middle Passage. His speech, as you would imagine, met with ferocious opposition, and he was shouted down, diminished, intimidated, and bullied. After that speech, young William Wilberforce wrote in his journal, you may choose to look the other way, but you can never say again that you did not know. The story continues in Acts 18, verse 24. Meanwhile, a Jew named Apollos an eloquent speaker who knew the scriptures well had arrived in Ephesus from Alexandria in Egypt. He had been taught the way of the Lord and he taught others about Jesus with an enthusiastic spirit and with accuracy. However, he only knew about John's baptism. Listen, when Priscilla and Aquila heard him preaching boldly in the synagogue, they took him aside and explained the way of God even more accurately. Accurately. 
I love the way that this passage graciously phrases this. Wise, unknown, and obscure, Priscilla and Aquila recognize the gifting in young Apollos. They hear him speak, and it says they didn't, like so many of the Jewish critics at the time, call him out in front of people in order to gain attention or stature for themselves. They waited until he was finished. They took him aside, and they explained the way more accurately. They filled in the gaps for him. He was a guy whose talent was off the charts, but his knowledge was minimal. Priscilla and Aquila, perhaps ordinary and average people without a ton to give on the surface, having said yes and traveled with Paul, multiplying his efforts for the gospel. They recognized here again what God was doing, where they were in Ephesus and in their time, and they pulled Apollos aside and effectively they discipled the young man. It says later in verse 27, Apollos had been thinking about going to Achaia, another influential region in the brand new Christian frontier called Europe. And the brothers and sisters in Ephesus encouraged him to go. They wrote to the believers in Achaia asking them to welcome him. And when he arrived there, he proved to be of great benefit to those who by God's grace had believed. Apollos refuted the Jews with powerful arguments in public debate, something that Priscilla and Aquila, it seems, never did and were not equipped to do. Using the scriptures, Apollos explained to them that Jesus was the Messiah. Apollos went on to be one of the first century of Christianity's most influential evangelists in the continent of Europe and a spiritual forefather to many of us of European descent. Little could Priscilla and Aquila have known that their yes would change the course of a continent and establish the kingdom on its most influential frontiers. But that's how it works. God will multiply your willingness if only you say yes. God multiplies it. He magnifies your obedience and your faithfulness. In April of 1791, with an impassioned and carefully reasoned four-hour speech, William Wilberforce introduced the first parliamentary bill to abolish the slave trade in England. The bill, of course, was easily defeated. This was an insurmountable obstacle. An unwinnable fight, he was told. But it was the beginning of what would go on to be a protracted parliamentary campaign for the next decade, during which one, one historian observed Wilberforce's commitment never, waited, never wavered despite constant and intense hostility. A bachelor, William Wilberforce, lived alone in the old palace yard neighborhood, and his home became a virtual center for the abolitionists' campaign, a veritable headquarters for many of their strategy meetings and Bible studies both. Dubbed the saints, 
by the cynical public, Wilberforce's small organic community of abolitionists grew into an informal group characterized by considerable intimacy, historians observed, during which Wilberforce's and his friend's commitment to practical Christianity and the opposition to slavery cemented. Their small group, Wilberforce's passion, formed into a small group, and their small group galvanized a movement. In 1807, more than a decade later, a bill was finally passed in Parliament ending the slave trade. History observes tributes were made to Wilberforce, whose face streamed with tears. Can you imagine this scene? Now an old man having devoted his whole life to this cause, which didn't ever personally affect him. Subject of derision, mockery, and hatred by his countrymen and his class. At last, a bill was passed, and in the face of stoic, aristocratic England, he stood in Parliament with tears streaming down his face. But William Wilberforce did not stop there. He continued to advocate for the total abolition of slavery, ending the slave trade was just a beginning. And so founded the Anti-Slavery Society, insisting total emancipation was morally and ethically required. That slavery was a national crime that must be abolished by parliamentary legislation. This legislation, too, was stymied Time and again in Parliament, a decade more, slowly and steadily, national sentiment changed. Tradition gave way to progress, and a historic injustice was righted. By 1833, Wilberforce's health had declined to the point that he could no longer sit in Parliament on a regular basis, but he mustered his strength and in April of that year made one final anti-slavery speech. Near the end of his life, in the following month, the government introduced the bill for the abolition of slavery, which formally passed, saluting Wilberforce in the process. He died three days later. Can you imagine falling across the finish line like that? Running exhausted into eternity, having given everything that you have. A man whose name is little recognized in our country, but whose fingerprints are all over the greatest decision our nation has ever made. Our heritage, so we esteem it, the abolition of slavery we received from our mother nation. 
It was this tide that swept across the Atlantic and moved the north and galvanized Abraham Lincoln. This is some of the greatest of Western civilization's heritage. And behind it was an ordinary average guy who was at the right place at the right time perhaps. And when he discerned what God was doing in that place at that time, he said, I don't know if I have much to give, but if there's no one else more suitable, send me. He spent his life for such a legacy. Now, don't get me wrong. Extraordinary people can leave a powerful legacy for sure. And great people doing great things will always be necessary. But my heroes have always been ordinary women and men who said yes at the moment that they discerned the great thing happening on their watch. A legacy doesn't require us to be extraordinary. I'm convinced God desires our willingness more than our greatness. In John 4, Jesus' disciples were always trying to focus on the natural. Perhaps it's because he asked them to leave everything, their nets in a boat and come follow him even though he didn't have a place to lay his head and trust God for everything. They were always preoccupied about food and bread and perhaps rightly so. Rabbi, eat, they said, and he told them, I have food to eat you know nothing about. So the disciples did what they do. They said to one another, has anyone brought him something to eat that we don't know about? And Jesus said, guys, look, my food is to do the will of him who sent me and to accomplish his work. Do you not say there are yet four months, then comes the harvest? Look, I tell you, lift up your eyes. The fields are white with harvest. In a time that turns our eyes inward and continually gravitates them down. In a time that has said like no other in my lifetime, hunker down, wait for the storm to pass. Just take care of you and yours. In a time when the love of many has grown cold, lift up your eyes. The fields are white for harvest. We're just ordinary people living in an extraordinary time. I hope if you take nothing from this service today, take that video, the extraordinary work for the kingdom of God, the demonstration of a God who is personal and loving, the value conferred on people who are starving to death in a rural village in Pakistan, being told by the delivery of food day after day in the moment of existential crisis, you are not an accident. You are not a product of biological chance. You were born on purpose. You are thought of by a loving God. He is your father. You are his child and your life matters. What more compelling expression of the gospel can there be? To kids living on the margins of poverty in our own city, perhaps raised by a single parent who's working to keep a roof over their head and the one nutritious meal that they've come become used to taken away because they can't go to school. And some of you show up with food 
and say, God sees you. You were created on purpose. You have inestimable value. Your life counts. The opportunities this year to demonstrate the love of Jesus in a way that transcends entirely, bypasses altogether the flimsy logic of the hateful atheist of last year. Who is he, Lord, that I may believe in him? See, that's the response of a person who's left to die and who's shown hope by someone they've never even met. I have no idea what 2021 is going to bring, but little did we know this time last year when we pulled our resources and sacrificially all who are willing and so moved by God without any arm twisting or compulsion, that's not coming. This isn't that thing. Maybe you've sat through the high pressure like timeshare sales pitch kind of offering in the past. This isn't that. We're simply going to invite you, if you'd like, to give together and endow a a resource trove so that next year, come what may, we can express Jesus here in Denver and around the world in practical ways. Who knew this time last year what 2020 would hold? But man, thank God that a bunch of us said yes. I see what you're doing, God. Here I am. Use me. And what good you have done this year. And so, the lesson of Priscilla and Aquila is simple and singular and impossibly important. May God give us grace to discern what He is doing in our time, in this place simply say yes because every legacy begins there. Amen. Would you stand with me? It's time for us to go and pray for you. We'll respond in worship together for a moment. Those of us who are worshiping here in our living room, those of you who are worshiping house to house in your own living room, we're going to pray for you and then it's a great time if you want to sign off or transition to brunch, to Bible study and whatever you guys are doing. We're so glad to be able to worship together as a family even while we're apart. Father, in Jesus' name, would you take your word and cause it to sink into our hearts. If anything I said is contrary to the counsel of your wisdom, would you cause it just to fall to the ground? Lord, I am nothing. You are everything and your words are the words of eternal life. So would you cause them to take their place in us, that we would be formed in you. And Lord, would you find people whose eyes are lifted up to see the fields white for harvest? Would you give us grace to say yes when you ask us? Lord, we bless our friends at home. We ask you to give them grace this week in everything they do. As they walk with you and represent you in this world to be lights in the darkness, meet their needs, fill them with hope and joy. Let the light of Jesus shine out of them. Lord, we love you. We entrust ourselves to you for this purpose. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Love you all. We hope you've been encouraged this week. For more information or to submit a prayer request, go to denverunited.com. 